May it be so. Amen. That could be the sermon today. (laughs) But today's lectionary scripture comes from the book of Ephesians, written to the early church as a reminder of God's call and purpose in their lives. I'm not going to be expounding a lot on this scripture. Rather, I use it as a template for my reflection. Now, many theologians have, have used this as a premier predestination or election piece of Reformed scripture, which I'm also not going to do. <laughs> Yet, I think it speaks to us pastorally. Here we are assured of God's love for us from the beginning of our lives and then our call to live into the way of Christ, bringing about the redemption of God's world. It is a fitting piece of scripture for my last time on this pulpit because I truly believe this church, throughout its history, has tried to live into this message. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. God destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that God freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavishes on us. With all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mysterious mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure that God set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people, to the praise of God's glory. The word of the Lord. Getting started on this last sermon was difficult. So many thoughts and reflections. So many things to say and share, so many things to be thankful for. I get teary-eyed just thinking about it, as I do now, and finally realize that, well, you're going to see me get a bit emotional. So some would say, that's what you get with more women on the pulpit. (laughs) But I know more than a few men that have cried as they've said their goodbyes. So if I make you a bit uncomfortable, keep in mind it's the last time you'll have to deal with it. (laughs) 
As my time here comes to an end, I have been reflecting on my time in Richmond, some of it serious, some of it more humorous. I think back to those first times I preached here and saw Brian Blunt and other union folks in the pews along with various ministers and other wonderful and thoughtful people, and I thought, holy um, cow. (laughs) And then, oh my gosh, Gail, don't say that out loud. (laughs) So thank you for the privilege of working out my preaching skills with you. I now go back to Michigan saying hi instead of hi. I now say lives instead of lives. And Ginger has really influenced me with her hi, honey. Last time, this is true, in Michigan, when I first saw my 32-year-old daughter in her kitchen, I enthusiastically opened my arms and said, hi, honey. She just stared at me (laughs) and slowly shaking her head said, what has happened to you? And this Thursday in a conversation with Ginger, I too referred to my deceased father as daddy, (laughs) who I don't think I ever called him that past the age of three. This spring, at a picnic, I pointed to pieces, breaded pieces of food, and asked the person behind me what they were. She said, oh, honey, those are hush puppies. (laughs) When I moved to Richmond, I thought a two-handed handshake was showing hospitality. Now I'm a hugger. Alex Alex still laughs over my body language when he went to hug me the first time. (laughs) Let me add here that working with Ginger and Alec has been a privilege, as well as with the rest of the staff. Yes, there have been cultural differences that I laugh at, but more importantly, there have been issues of faith, friendship, and relationships that have touched and influenced me causing me to grow and reflect on my relationship with God, each other, and the world we live in. There are too many instances to name, but know all of you have collectively shaped and molded me in so many ways. I know I leave knowing this congregation is living into the inheritance you have obtained in Christ. You are discerning and living into the purpose to which Christ is calling you. And you are living into praising God with your worship and your lives. That takes courage and accountability. On Facebook this week, perhaps some of you saw it too, a few friends of mine posted a picture of the late great author and theologian C.S. Lewis. He was on the cover of Life magazine, smoking a cigarette, with this quote, I didn't go into religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port could do that. (laughs) If you want a religion to make you feel real comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Anyone who gets involved in this community here at Second, as I, have, as I have been privileged to do so, will grow in one's faith and relationship with God, with yourself, and with others. 
being a member here isn't a pie-in-the-sky type of Christianity. From its beginning, this church has a strong history of taking the difficult steps to discern how God is calling and moving amongst you to proclaim Christ here in Richmond and beyond. It is because of congregations like this that I so deeply believe in the church in the midst of all its problems and admittedly at times my deep frustration with it. Because I don't know how we can walk this road of humanity by ourselves without a caring community such as this, without a solid base to live within, within troubled times, and a place to celebrate and recognize God's midst, God's presence in the midst of joy and times of renewal. Being part of a Christ-centered community keeps us grounded and allows us to live into hope for ourselves and God's world. Being part of the church reminds us that we belong to God, not ourselves, and in knowing and living into this, we find true meaning in life. And this is a place where this can be experienced. One of the first communities as second I was exposed to was the radical women who meet monthly. All are over 70 first-wave feminists who tackle difficult faith issues with gusto. And one of the important things they did for me was to solidify a strong hunch I had. It is not just the youth and young adults who want and need to have a place to discuss and verbalize questions about faith. In our rapidly changing society, all of us need a place where we can question, share, and discuss together how God is working in our lives and how we sense God calling us. The Bible study I facilitated monthly at Westminster Canterbury also reinforced this. And I want to thank this group for helping me develop my sermons as most months we studied and talked about the text I would next be preaching on. I have also been privileged to be part of a pilot spiritual formation group where we meet to practice ancient Christian practices and share where and how we see God working in our lives. Watch for more information from this group to start another group on your own. Since I was in my late 20s, long before I went to seminary, being part of spiritual formation or small groups has been integral to my well-being and spiritual growth. Most of these groups never had an ordained pastor in them. And if there was one, they were not the leader, but shared leadership. Here's another firm conviction of mine. Churches that are alive and growing don't depend alone on ordained pastors to lead them. Sure, there is the need at times for direction and teaching from trained pastors, seminary professors, or educators, but growing and sustained churches are not spoon-fed by their pastors. We live in a culture where young people and young adults have grown up in schools where learning teams are the norm. 
They teach themselves at times. And in our places of employment, working alongside in teams is also essential. Today, the church needs to provide places for this to happen. And I'm happy to say that repeatedly in these past few years, I have witnessed the excitement and spiritual growth when this takes place. Keep it up and watch for new adult education opportunities coming up. The deacon ministry here has been one of the most exciting things I have ever participated in ministry. When the deacons envisioning team set out to explore different models of ministry, we began with prayer, exploration, and being open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. For me, it was both scary and exhilarating to watch this unfold, and I remained excited, not scared, to see how they are still unfolding. I leave confident that the deacons will continue to move forward, tweaking and refining how congregational care is done along with pastors. It has also been inspirational to see how a new model of youth ministry has unfolded, utilizing seminary students, and it has been a privilege to be part of the new Collegiate Presbyterian Fellowship, reaching out to VCU and J. Sarge Community College students. Truly, it has been a joy to work with so many Union Seminary students. And speaking of Union Seminary, I will deeply miss that place, especially the library, where I can actually feel my IQ raise 10 to 15 points by just walking into it. Another thing is I will miss the music program. Thank you for helping me worship while leading worship, which is sometimes difficult to do. Speaking of worship, still another exciting ministry I've watched form is the new Wednesday contemplative worship. To have a place midweek where one can relax into the presence of God and contemplate God at work in our lives is so very important and helpful to one's faith and life. If you haven't attended, I encourage you to do so. It is a renewing and transformational experience. Finally, being involved in the mission endeavors of second and more importantly, watching so many of you actively work at them has been deeply meaningful. From the Monday walk-in ministry, which feeds our neighbors, to involvement with mission partners in Guatemala and Malawi, this church takes seriously Christ's call to care for the least of them. Watching the advocacy group launch this year has been groundbreaking. They are following both the New and Old Testament's prophetic call for justice. It will take discernment, courage, and the awareness that feathers will at times be ruffled, just as Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Christ himself stirred up the religious status quo. During a Skype interview with the search committee at First Presbyterian Church in Marshall, Michigan, one of the members asked me, what is one idea from my ministry in Richmond that really stands out to me? Just one thing, I asked. We laughed. 
I briefly thought about it and said that I had never realized how much the Civil War has shaped our Christian theology, especially concerning issues on death, dying, and heaven. Then I added that it has been solidified for me while living in this historic city the inescapable importance and need for us to face our national history if, in fact, we are going to be able to get to the root and systemic causes of poverty, classism, and racism within our own country and make changes. And this requires an openness which can be threatening. At least it has been for me, and at times still is. Living in Richmond, living here in the downtown community, has caused me to think a lot about why I think facing our history is important in our 21st century walk of faith as we attempt to live into our inheritance as God's people and help bring about the redemption of God's world. I hope you can follow my train of thought here. Fridays are usually my day off, and I often catch bits and pieces on NPR, National Public Radio, of a show called Science Fridays with Ira Flato. How many of you have ever caught this at one time or another? Okay, some of you have. I am always amazed at how excited people are about new discoveries. Granted, I sometimes have to struggle to keep up with the conversation, and here at times I feel my IQ slipping, just trying to follow along. But I love hearing the discoveries and how, for the most part, this world of science doesn't fear new revelations. Rather, they need them. Remember when people first began talking about quantum physics? And just this week, the Higgs boson, I think that's how you say it, the so-called God particle was discovered. Scientists have long puzzled over how minute building blocks of the universe acquire mass. And this discovery is putting the pieces together and is, and is also bringing about fascinating new possibilities. In science, there are sometimes new discoveries that absolutely flip previous ways of thoughts. And other times, like the Higgs bosom, there appears to be a discovery that makes everything fit together. For the mar- most part, we, you and me, aren't appalled by these new scientific discoveries which cause people to re-evaluate. And I'm not talking about religion that fears science, which I know has in the past, done in the past, and at times still does. Yet when it comes to new revelations about our national history or even our biblical history, we tend to get a bit nervous And I know for myself, denial can kick in. Now, one of the things I have found here and cherish about this congregation is the intellectual stimulation found here. And I appreciate how you take what you are reading or encountering in life and try to pair it alongside of your faith and God's call. 
So many of you are readers and have shared books for me to read, and yes, I actually do keep a list. So I'd like to share a few thoughts about how some of your recommendations have helped me to think about God's justice and mercy in our history. One Sunday after church, during my first few months here, Larry Palmer asked me if I'd ever seen Hollywood Cemetery. I hadn't. So he told me to hop in his car, and he drove me around that amazing place. And there he shared that when he rides his bike through it, he practices a spiritual discipline of praying for his enemies. Larry, being an African-American, didn't say this lightly. Yet, yet, he also added that Hollywood Cemetery is a beautiful and sacred place, a place that honors life. And he went on to explain how how so many soldiers had died in the Civil War and pointed out to me where some of the more notable ones were buried. He told me, no, insisted that I read a book called This Republic of Suffering, Death in the American Civil War, written by Drew Gilpin Faust, an award-winning historian and president of Harvard University. The book is not an easy read but in an important one. The Tuesday morning book group has read it here, and I joined their discussion. And a word to the wise from Milt Bigger. Read it before 11 (laughs) a.m. Not between 9 and 11 p.m., like I did. Between 1861 and 1865, as some of you know, an estimated 620,000 soldiers died, more of them from the South. Altogether, 650,000 people died during the Civil War from injury and diseases that spread through their communities. That would be the equivalent of 6 million people today. Just think of that. This book also tells some of our history that because it has been so painful, just hasn't been read at large before. I also read, or rather listened to on CDs while I traveled, Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen, which Lorna Barrell lent to me during one of my visits while she was recovering from surgery. And Lorna, I will get those back to you before I leave. (laughs) While listening to it, I'd stop the CD, call my son, a college history major, who has a college major in history, and my daughter, a geography major, to ask them if they knew the various things I was hearing. So get this, they knew most of the things that were blowing me away. I called a friend who teaches history at the University of Kansas, Randall Jelks, and spoke to another, Jim Bratt, who teaches history at Calvin College, to verify things. Yes, James Lowen was correct. So how come I didn't know these things, I cried. I also talked with my brother and various friends who didn't know a whole lot more than I did. Truthfully, last summer I was rather obnoxious on this topic, and at times probably still am. But I found out at my family wedding that my nieces and nephews knew a whole lot more 
than I did. The final book I've just finished by the advice of John Meeser and others is Richmond's Unhealed History by Benjamin Campbell, who is the director at Richmond Hill. On the back cover, John Meeser is quoted saying, this is a unique book that should be required reading for every Richmonder, better yet, every American. John says that because although it tells the story of Richmond, John says that, Because although it tells the story of Richmond, it also tells the story of our nation and so many of our cities. Some of these stories I've seen played out in Buffalo, New York, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and in Detroit. Yet Ben Campbell, like the Higgs-Bosom theory, ties so much together and opens up possibilities. Oh, and Bob Cluel has told me that Ben Campbell is already booked, I believe in October, to talk to second folks about this book. So here's one of the reasons I think knowing our history is so important. The younger generation is learning it. And people in suppressed populations already know it and are finally getting their stories told. If the church wants to be relevant to a younger generation about justice and social issues and work alongside populations on the margins, we need to know our history. I have found throughout the years that as I have been awakened to various parts of our history, there are those who already know it. As the famous German theologian Jürgen Moltmann who was a prisoner of World War II in England. He says the oppressors and powerful quickly forget, but the oppressed never do. So if I, if I want to understand and communicate with those on the margins or from marginal groups, I need to be open to listen and hear their stories without getting defensive, which is really hard for me to do. The truth is that I, we can't take back the past, and not hearing or seeing it doesn't make it go away. But I am convinced that knowing our history opens up the future. By hearing and knowing our history, we open ourselves up to new and deeper relationships with all of God's people and we develop a better understanding of the systematic roots of poverty, and that is freeing for all of us. And this better allows us to be part of God's redemptive witness in and through Jesus Christ, a witness that is so desperately needed in our world. So there you have it. Some final Richmond reflections, none of which could have happened without you. Thank you. Thank you for helping me grow in my own faith. And for definitely helping me and pushing me to struggle and grapple with various issues. It has been a joy for me to work with you in this amazing and courageous congregation 
that is attempting and is living into God's prophetic call and voice. A call lived within a deep biblical grounding and faith in Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen. Please pray with me. O Lord, we call ourselves a people of all the saints. We learn from those who have gone before us, those who walk beside us, and we set in motion a future for those who will come and walk into your future. May may we be witnesses of Christ's love to those we encounter. In Christ's name, amen.